the next speaker um, is uh, Vicki Cargill, who will talk about some of the, the uh, again, the setting of some of these decisions uh, in, a, in a very complex world that we work in and that she lives and works in. Vicki is uh, a head of a minority uh, uh, office at the Office of AIDS Research um, and a very active clinician. Vicki. I want to thank uh, Jerry and Paul and the organizers for inviting me to give this presentation. And I'm sure this is something that everyone here is very familiar with and has heard this before, that you know, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. So in terms of my disclosures, as you saw earlier, I do, have, uh, do not have any relevant financial uh, affiliations. And I also must tell you, since I'm a federal employee, that at times I may express my personal opinion, but these are not the opinion of the National Institutes of Health, nor the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is what I call my I'm allergic to unemployment statement. Uh, I'm going to sort of take the pastor's approach. You know, the minister tells you what he's going to tell you, then he tells you, then he tells you what he told you. So let's go over some of our um, learning objectives. I think it's going to be important for us, and I really appreciate some of the questions that came up to Mike in the previous presentation, that it's going to be important to take a look at what are these intersecting, what we call social determinants of health that impact HIV care and treatment. What are some of the barriers? And look at these at multiple levels. I think it's very easy to focus on the individual in front of us, or alternatively, we have these guidelines. I know I've done this, and look at ourselves and say, what are we doing wrong, as opposed to looking at the multiple levels that this can happen. What are some of the factors that we can associate with care linkage and engagement, uh, as well as what are some effective strategies that will work for specific populations, and then wind up with where are our gaps and where do we want to go in the future? So this is how we always start these, and I love the ARS system, so let's start with this first. Which of the following has been consistently associated with poor linkage to care? And you see the options here, differences in provider prescribing habits, poor experience with HIV testing, geographic location, or lack of self-efficacy. Go ahead and select. Okay. I'm not going to say any more about that. We'll see. And patient involvement in HIV treatment decision making has been associated with appointment adherence, meaning they come to the appointments. You have two choices. Go ahead and select. True or false. You missed it when Jerry treated us to some dancing a couple of years ago. I was thrilled. That's very interesting as well. We'll come back to that during the talk. So I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I, the cases I present are people that I actually care for or have cared for until they unfortunately passed away. And this first case is a young woman that I'm still caring for. And Tia presented to us. She was 34 years old at the time. She tested positive for HIV infection at the age of 19. And during those intervening years, she's given birth to four children. Uh, one, two of those children were fraternal twins. The first child she gave birth to died six months after birth from what she said was a crib death. She had the second pregnancy, which were the set of twins, and the male of those twins died at age nine from sickle cell disease crisis. And then she had subsequent pregnancies. She dropped out of care for nine years. She was in intermittent care subsequently. She has both appointment and medication non-adherence, as you would uh, suspect. And yet all of her children were HIV uninfected. 
but she showed up in clinic because her mother brought her, and she was 70 pounds less than the weight we last had on the chart. She had thrush, fever, cough, she was tachypneic, and she had diarrhea, and she basically told me, I'm not going to any damn hospital. So these really are some of the challenges that we have to face, and it's really, I think, a syndemic of tragedies, not just disparities. We've heard wonderful talks at CROI. We've seen how our treatment strategies have improved. And we have over these 27 antiretroviral drugs. The NA Accord data presented at CROI in last year showed that there has been an increase in life expectancy among North Americans who actually do initiate antiretroviral therapy. And yet, and yet, black HIV-infected women presented at that same meeting by the WISE cohort were shown to be twice as likely as their white female counterparts to die from HIV infection. And Latinos and blacks in general are significantly more likely to present late for care and have higher morbidity and mortality. So we clearly have a disconnect. And unfortunately, people dying from HIV infection consistently appear to be women, black, African-American, residents of the South, 45 years of age or older, and HIV infection, as you all know, and I don't have to tell you, remains one of the leading causes of death among people 25 to 44 years of age, particularly if they are black or African American. And we don't have to spend a great deal of time on this, but I think it's worth noting that while we have seen improvements, I would point out to you that with the death rates shown here on the y-axis in numbers per 100,000, and in the years from 1990 spanning to 2009, we all saw this nice brisk decline right here with the introduction of protease inhibitors. And yet, African Americans or blacks, followed by Hispanic Latino, have not seen the same brisk decline as others. They've trended in the same direction, but it not has been as great. And if you want to take this even further, and go to death rates just by looking at two groups of men, they are white or black, and dichotomize the age group, that is 25 to 44 or 45 to 54, you can see that again, while there has been a steep decline, when you look at the rates compared to their white counterparts, they're quite striking. So I think we've made the case that HIV is certainly a health disparity, but for our patients, unfortunately, it's not the only one they have to deal with. Let's look at some of them. Poverty. Poverty rates for black and Hispanics greatly exceed the national average, and these are from the National Poverty Center at the University of Michigan. 27.4% of blacks and 26% plus of Hispanics were poor compared to 9.9% for their Caucasian counterparts. But this is what I think is most striking. If you look at not only the race of the individual, but what their status is in the household, if it's a single female head of household, the rates climb to 32%, and certainly foreign-born citizens have high poverty rates. I would go on to say that in this country currently, we have the highest rate of black female single head of households that we have had in any time in our history except for slavery. Health illiteracy and limited insurance options is also another a disparity, and this certainly impacts how people can access and link to care, because levels of health literacy have been closely correlated with HIV knowledge. And unfortunately, health literacy has also been well correlated with educational attainment. And I don't think it requires a rocket scientist or a PhD to realize in our country with the dropout rates and the impact and the disproportionate impact of undereducation upon communities of color, how this will then tie up. 
However, the good news is that the impact of limited health literacy can be moderated by self-efficacy. In other words, those individuals who felt that they could take control of their lives, that they had some ability to take control of what would happen to them, were not as negatively impacted by their lower health literacy. Health insurance has been clearly correlated with the earlier initiation of antiretroviral therapy. And not surprisingly, if you have commercial or private insurance, as opposed to Medicaid or Medicare. And finally, health insurance certainly correlates with unemployment, with employment rather, although I put an asterisk there because we're going to hear from Jen and she's going to talk about some of the changes that are going to happen. But nevertheless, unemployment rates are much higher for blacks and Hispanics than they are for whites. And in fact, they have remained for blacks, the unemployment rates, twice as high as for Caucasians. And that has been true not only in 2012, but as far back as 1972 when we first began to track that indicator. Violence and suicide certainly impact people's ability to link to care. Violence against oneself in terms of suicide. Native Americans have the second highest rate of suicide, and that's across every single age group. And then if we look at homicide, again, most of you are from the city. I don't have to tell you this. The non-Hispanic blacks account for almost half, almost half, 48.7% of the homicide deaths, and that's the highest rate for any population group. And again, over half of these deaths were in males ages 15 to 34, followed by Native Americans, and then followed closely by Hispanics. Again, I'll asterisk Native Americans because there's another issue here if you're talking about trying to engage in Lincoln to care. Native Americans, in particular, Native American females, multiple studies have demonstrated when going to seek drug counseling have often been then subjected to violence because of situations in their home. Now, there are other individual level factors, and I could spend the whole time I have left um, and giving Donna fits talking about them, but I won't. Certainly stigma, whether it's enacted, what someone has done to or perceived, what you think you're experiencing can certainly interfere with care. I'm going to come back to homophobia and link it back with incarceration, with shame. There are language barriers in terms of going to where I need to get care, but no one speaks my language or I have to wait for a translator. And I'm sure we've all been in sessions where we see someone who does not speak English, we don't have the ability to speak to them, and then they bring a child, which is questionable at best and inappropriate much of the time for some of the conversations we need to have. And so you have these unfortunate truncated conversations trying to go around issues that we need to be able to be dead center on. Incarceration, I'm sure that it's no different here than any place else. Individuals poorly linked to care, being dropped off at 4 o'clock in the morning is not usually conducive to getting into care. Privacy concerns, distrust of providers, all of these have been found by Valverde's group. Unstable housing, people are afraid of being uh, outed, the fear of being their status being disclosed, mental health concerns. But I want to come back to homophobia, shame, and fear of disclosure. I actually care for a man who is well regarded in his business, but he lives in a predominantly African American community. He has become HIV infected. I have cared for him for three years. He will never come to the front door of the practice. He insists that he comes to the back door of the practice, and he will call my cell phone so I can open up the back door because he can come through the courthouse, which looks like he's doing business there, as opposed to the front door, which looks like he's got HIV infection. So HIV is really just one disparity. It's impacted by poverty, as well as educational status. Health literacy and educational status are clearly very closely linked. Unemployment, if you're not employed, it's linked to poverty. 
And then certainly, until recently, without employment, that leads insurance issues. Gender in some locales, particularly in the South, is linked to poor linkage to care, as is stigma. And then violence, either stigma leading to violence or violence that is occurring and the stigma of intimate partner violence, and certainly mental health status. All of these things contribute. But if we focus on just these individual factors, then we never look at the other circumstances that can impact individuals. And I would say that's a very short-sighted way to look at it. And that means that brings us now to the socio-ecological framework, which is a larger framework of this individual within a community, within their organization and beyond. So why would we use this? Well, for one thing, it accounts for the fact that all of us are impacted by external factors that influence our decisions. And it recognizes that these components are from the external world and, more importantly, gives us an opportunity to target interventions to these various external forces. And this has been used for some time. The socio-ecological model is quite old. It's been around since at least the 1970s. And it's been found useful to address those health issues and health behaviors in particular that are influenced by such things such as cultural context, trust, beliefs, and some more recent uh, interventions were done in the areas of prenatal care and weight loss, as an example. So this is the generic socio-ecological model, the individual and their knowledge, attitudes, and skills, their interpersonal. Most look at the community first, but again, then organization, and finally, our public policy. So someone may have a belief that they can remain uh, in HIV care, but if friends and family say they're only going to just talk about you and put your business in the street, there you are right away sets up a dynamic for someone not to engage. This, care, this model has actually been personalized for HIV, and I think it's a busy slide. I'm not going to take you through all of it, but I just want to walk you through a couple of things. There are certainly predisposing factors for individuals having difficulty linking to care, such as race and age, as we've discussed. But they're also enabling, having assurance status that allows you to seek care, transportation that's provided, having social support, Having self-efficacy, as I mentioned before, the belief that you can have some control in this, that there's resiliency and coping. And resiliency I particularly want to talk about because so much of what we do in linkage to care and what we talk about has this feel to it. You must, you must, you must, as opposed to how well you've managed thus far. And then perceived need. Relationships are clearly important. Relationships with um, case managers, the provider, in your social network that can help enable or provide a barrier to care, and then outside in the community and certainly beyond. And Jen is going to get into some of the policy things. So here's a case, uh, again. Uh, this is a case in my patient of mine who, when I met him, told me he was a player. In fact, his exact quote was, Dr. Cargill, I'm a player. Lock up your nurses. <laughs> really? My nurse was not impressed. Uh, she was totally over him. He also has a factor 7a deficiency, which we picked up. And four weeks prior to showing up, he'd been treated for syphilis. And appropriately at that time, was counseled to get an HIV test, which was positive by rapid testing. And the confirmatory test was positive as well. And he did receive post-test counseling, including what it meant to be positive, barrier protection, safety in sexual matters, as well as drug using matters, and the cleansing of sexual toys. And was given a list of treatment sites and the testing center even circled those sites that were close to him or treatment sites where he gave as his address. So here we go. Do you think he follows up with care? It's very simple, yes or no? Everybody's laughing because they already know the answer. We'll get your blood going this morning. 
as always, the New York audience is very, very wise, of course. <laughs> of course he doesn't follow up. He followed up, I could go home. <laughs> the reason I mention this is because repeatedly studies have demonstrated that engagement in HIV care begins at the testing site. How people experience that has a very important relationship to whether or not they continue to follow up in care. And this has been demonstrated in several studies, we'll talk about one, that that counseling, testing, and referral experience seems to appear to set the tone for how the individual will engage in medical care. The Never in Care project was done in five um, states with mature HIV epidemics, including right here in New York City. And those who never sought care, and this was not a quantitative study, it was a qualitative study, which is why it allows us to find out more information from these individuals, were predominantly male, African-American, and young. And dissatisfaction with this counseling and testing experience was a pervasive theme. Everything from the person didn't have any empathy, you know, they gave me incorrect information, I didn't really get very much counseling. Even sending someone to a wrong address was enough to turn them off completely. And one very poignant comment was a young man who was listed as being African-American and 25 said, they acted like they could not have cared less. It's a good thing I have support. And if you think this means I'm going to go back and see anyone about this, I won't. No, never, never. The method of referral also impacted their linkage outcomes. If it was passive, meaning you gave the individual a card or a brochure, they were less likely to go than if it was an active referral. And active referrals, I understand, take more time, but that meant that the person was accompanied, perhaps there was an appointment made for the person. It might even just picking up the phone and calling and saying, okay, do you have an appointment? And then speaking with the individual. One person reported, I really wasn't going to do anything about this, but the woman who tested me made me think like she cared. It was like she was my sister. She said, I've called, they'll see you, I want you to let me know how it goes. Whether or not he followed up with her, we don't know, but at least he felt motivated because someone took the interest. So these challenges that I'm sharing with you are just part and parcel of the rationale for these test and treat interventions, and Dr. Alsado will be here this afternoon and talk with you more about it at that time. Now, speaking of providers, providers are another piece of the retention and engagement puzzle, and they're very important because early in the epidemic, there were several studies, the hexis, uh, William Cunningham, William King, Wong, all published that it looked like ART prescribing was racially biased. And before you immediately say, see, I told you, it was actually biased in both directions. Whether the, the provider was African-American and the patient was white or vice versa, there appeared to be some sort of racial bias. Fortunately for us, repeat studies have not collaborated or corroborated this. However, patient trust in the provider is an important component of care adherence. I don't have to tell you this, you know this. But I want to stress that because these are things that we can do. And for African Americans in particular, this was the bottom line. Do I trust the provider? And how important are they? Well, Flickinger did one study with over 1,300 urban patients in an urban clinic demonstrating that these provider-patient communications were essential. These patients were asked a number of questions about the patient-provider communication. And they reported and were able to correlate appointment adherence with whether the person felt the provider treated them with respect, gave them dignity, that they listened to their concerns, and most importantly reported that the provider saw them as an individual. And that led to them keeping more appointments and also looked like they were being more adherent. 
So being involved in decision-making, however, was not associated with appointment adherence. So even if the physician didn't, or the provider didn't necessarily cede some bit of control in the decision-making to the patient, as long as the individual felt that they were engaged in a relationship that was dignified and provided communication, particularly explaining things in a way that they could understand, there was return visits. Now beyond providers, we all know there are structural barriers such as clinic hours, appointments, does it mean if you miss an appointment you can't be seen for three months? Are there hours at night or on weekends so that people do not have to work or have jobs where if you don't show up you don't get paid? Therefore the choice is not come to clinic or not, it's come to clinic or don't eat. Um, and there have been very interesting and novel approaches using social marketing. Uh, HRSA has funded a special projects of national significance or SPINs that's targeting black and Latino young MSM using a social marketing approach to get them engaged in care that has had about a 75% retention rate. And there have even been some very low level interventions. And I believe that uh, Gardner has a nice paper on this where the clinic simply had brochures, posters, cards that said coming back for care is important. Remaining with us helps you remain in care. It helps affect the outcome of your, of your care and they had a small but incremental and consistent 7% increase in follow-up. And then finally, something that's done widespread, cab vouchers, um, grocery cards. In our practice, we also use uh, gift cards as incentives. As I told one patient, I'm giving you a gift card because then you can't tell people Dr. Cargill funded your blow with cash. Um, Peer navigators have also been used and have been really quite successful. Now this model comes from the dental literature and we heard earlier that, you know, Mike said if we were not just staying with HIV but looked at other disease states of inflammation, we would see some of the same problems. I want to remind us to do the same thing when it comes to engagement and care and retention. Our dental colleagues have looked at this and been able to use a model using peer navigators to actually be able to help them, or their patients, navigate the system, coordinate their care and support them through that process. Medical homes is another uh, intervention, and HRSA again has been looking at this. And the uh, PUFF project, which stands for people coming back for who have been failed to follow up, really was quite exciting in this regard. These, uh, this clinic had a retention specialist. I would love a retention specialist, but they had a retention specialist. They also had staff who were trained in looking for the signs and symptoms of people that were going to disappear from care and not come back. And this retention specialist was alone responsible for re-engaging 112 out of 776 patients that had dropped out of care, which I think is pretty impressive. And then finally, multidisciplinary teams. We have used them for antiretroviral adherence. We can also use them in primary care. And these teams usually include the provider, as well as a case manager, sometimes a social worker, the pharmacist, so that everything can try and wrap around the patient in a way to make this as painless as possible. But now we do have to move forward. Here's what I think we need, and, and I like to keep it simple because I'm simple. It's the four E's. We need easy, evidence-based, economical, and effective interventions to enhance linkage from testing into care. It doesn't do us any good to have all these fantastic pills, and I can tell you right now, I probably can't get half the people to take them. And I actually, while I was sitting here, had a, an email from the nurse telling me that one of my patients just showed up and said that she's very sick and happened to have her backpack. And when it fell on the floor, my bottle of Truvada and all the pills rolled out. And it looks like she hasn't taken any. I guess that might be why she's sick. 
Um, we need to target the interventions for specific populations at increased risk for care disengagement. And this particularly means racial and ethnic populations, the young, those who have literacy issues. We know from the work of Millet and others, uh, men who are sex with men in particular. And we need robust, real-world interventions to enhance care. Some of our interventions work very well when we can pay people and we have multiple people shepherding them. But what happens in the practice where we don't have the, that extra staff perhaps to do that? How can we enhance care, facilitate patient-provider communication? Because as you've seen, providers play a very important role in this. Build our system navigation skills and encourage re-engagement. Because there was a presentation at Croy where it caught my attention uh, last year where people dropped out of care and eventually re-engaged. But the biggest reason they dropped out of care in that particular uh, data set from here in New York was they felt well. So why do I need to go to the doctor? I feel good. We need to enhance the safety nets so that we can quickly identify and engage those who do not link to care after they have been tested. And sadly, we have to recognize that we may not be able to engage everyone. And that's, I think, for providers, hard to swallow. Because if we gave up that easily, we probably wouldn't be doing this to begin with. So coming full circle, I will pick up Tia, where we left her in the beginning, in the office, febrile, coughing, and short of breath. She refused hospitalization. As I said, she said, I refuse to go to that damn hospital. But at that point, being desperate and feeling I had nothing to lose, I stepped outside and said to her mother, you need to call everybody you can get your hands on. They need to come to the office. And that's what she did. And in that patient room, we had 14 people, including her children. It was a mob scene. I had to stand on the foot of the patient table because I couldn't you know, get her through all these people. And we had to discuss her issues, and we did it right there. We got the case manager upstairs to reassure her that the city would not come back and take her children away again if she was hospitalized because that was a legitimate issue, and that her mother, who did have custody of her children, would make sure those children got up to see her. Her uncle reassured her that he would personally back her mother up in this regard. We have an adherence team where I practice, and one of the adherence team members said, look, I will go with you to the hospital. So we got her downstairs. And by this point, I will tell you, this woman was so weak and so light, I carried her down the stairs in my arms because she weighed 90 pounds. She could barely walk. Uh, she was treated successfully for what turned out to be a bacterial pneumonia. If you had asked me how to swan up and down a stack of Bibles, this woman had PCP. We began her on antiretroviral therapy, antifungal therapy, and OI prophylaxis since she had a robust CD4 count of two. Um, and a viral load in excess of 375,000 copies. Six months later when she showed up, I almost didn't recognize her. She was wearing makeup, she was 20 pounds heavier, and she looked like she was well on her way. And 14 months later, she no-showed again. And so the cycle begins. And that's, that O that I heard, that's right. And as providers, I think we take it personally. I took it personally. I've sat by this woman's bedside. I have cried with this woman as I've been fearful for what will happen. But that is the nature of the beast. We have to then re-engage them again. So, take you back to where we started. Which of the following has been consistently associated with poor linkage to care? Differences in provider prescribing habits, poor experience with HIV testing, geographic location, or lack of self-efficacy? Go ahead.
Do we have a pre and post comparison? There we go. Well, looks like I've been able to persuade some of you. Excellent. And then patient involvement in HIV treatment decision making has been associated with appointment adherence, true or false? We'll be jamming today, huh? And again, do we have the comparison? Excellent. So this is a long road. We need much better strategies to effectively reach these populations. We will continue to have those persons that we cannot engage in care. But I want to remind us that we don't, don't underestimate not only what we can do as providers, what trying to remediate even small barriers can do, what small changes can lead to, and ultimately that the thing that keeps me going is I remind myself that just like I have to give to my patients, I give to myself hope. Because if I give up, we're lost. Thank you. Yeah, we're hitting them out of the park today. That was great. And so really literally on the top of my stack, this is kind of Vicky versus Mike Sag. Oh. Best talk ever at an ISUSA conference. So huh. good. <laughs> <laughs> so before I get into questions, um, this spectacular attendance this year, um, and it exceeded our expectations. And there, as a result, is we've had to bring a bunch of chairs into the back. Um, so maybe I won't do it right now, but maybe right after the break, I'll have Jerry do this. Um, ask you to kind of clear off the space next to you if you're kind of occupying the seat like I just was with my briefcase. Um, and I think there are actually uh, and plenty of seats uh, at the tables for all the people that are waiting in the back. So again, think about that and we'll, uh, we'll do it after the break. Um, so I guess I was gonna, I was kind of curious, and we're gonna have a t another talk on the cascade uh, that that Wafa will do after um, after a bit. But um, seems to me, from what I've seen, that you know, if we're if our goal is at a population level to increase the proportion of people that are virally suppressed, we have to be doing all of these interventions um, very well. You you kind of focused maybe a bit more on the entry into care, but. I'm interested in the step between adherence, which I think of as you know getting them suppressed, and then retention in care, which is a longer range problem. Can you comment a little bit on, on that? I think you're right. And it's really a formidable challenge, because we not only have to have people know their status, because you can't be in treatment if you don't even know that you need to be, and then link them, but then get them to stay, get them to accept what our recommendations are, and then to comply. And you're right, they are formidable challenges. And that's why I think trying to look at individual factors or look at provider factors, looking at all these things in isolation will not work. You know, Gardner um, looked at this test and treat strategies. And there's a companion editorial which was rather skeptical of the long-term effectiveness of that, because there are so many other challenges that are every step along the way. My take on this, and again, I just keep it simple, if we don't try to intervene, then what are we doing? Basically throwing our hands up metaphorically and saying, well, we can't intervene, and there's a certain number of people that are just going to get infected, and so what? I think that our, our tools will increase, 
our prevention strategies will increase, and I see it as being able to start to bring together the sociological and the biomedical. That's going to be the only way to probably move forward. Otherwise, we're going to lose people. And we, unfortunately, I think for some of these populations, given what they've experienced, we are going to anyway. So um, a, a number of questions about kind of how do you do these things. I, I, I guess maybe I'll start, though, with a question that somebody said from mental health perspective. What do you, what, describe your interface with depression and, and, exactly. and exactly. how much depression is, uh, exactly. is a challenge in this. Exactly. I think that's a wonderful question. Not your own depression. No. <laughs> we can talk about that later. <laughs> uh, that's a wonderful question. I'm so glad that someone asked it because in the time that I had, it's not really possible to go into all of that. But in the treatment guidelines that uh, we published and in, in the work that looks at this, there are a couple of things about mental health status I think it's important to note. First of all, that if we just think about women living with HIV infection, almost two-thirds of them have experienced some form of violence in their lives or have ongoing violence. Then secondly, if you take a look at depression, depression is quite high, but unfortunately depression appears to be the only mental health condition for which we have very good data related to depression, I mean to adherence or care engagement. When you start looking at bipolar disorders, schizophrenia, other mental health disorders, we have almost nothing. In fact, when we wrote those guidelines, that was one of the research gaps that we highlighted. And then the, the fourth thing is, for individuals who are facing some of the challenges that our, our patients do, a lot of it also boils around the circumstances that involve their children. Many of our women who are not engaged in care have lost their children. In fact, uh, Laura Cheever at Hearst and I have said there are really sort of four things we listen for. My mother's got my kids. I don't care anymore. Nobody will miss me if I'm gone. And what difference does it make anyway? When I hear those four things, I know that that person's really on their way out the door. And I pretty much better figure out something quickly. So uh, here's a question for me. Um, will her slides be online? Yes. Um, yes. And absolutely, yes. Yes. before the end of the day, all. we'll get them online. Yeah. Um, you're welcome so, to have them all. Yes, absolutely. And we don't have WAFAs yet, so <laughs> when we do, we'll get hers online uh, as well. Um, there, there are, I, I love these question cards. Jerry, I'll get to you next. But because um, a number uh, of them are asking the same issue, you can tell the, the struggle that people have. Um, kind of paraphrasing, uh, do we have the resources? Um, how do you enforce the quality of care when your time for patients is limited? Um, I love your talk, but it's so hard to spend time with patients. We don't have the time to, to work. Can you comment on this? Can you fix the problem? <laughs> All right, let me, let me start trying to figure that. So resources. That was what I mentioned at the beginning, that these projects such as the SPINS project, they're wonderful. But as I said, I would love to have a resource specialist. Our adherence team, I don't think I'm telling any tales out of school here, are people that work with our practice, and some also volunteer the practice, but they've been through confidentiality training because they can say things that I can't say. For example, I can say to an individual, I really need you to take these pills and explain why, but then I get pushed back, well, I can't do this and I can't do that. I can actually call one of our adherence team members who is a person who's recovered from his active substance abuse history, lived on the street, knew the area well, and he basically said to this woman in front of me, I take 15 pills a day and you can't get down to what is the problem. Now, I can't say that, but you know, kind of he can say that. And then he can offer to talk with her, and they actually have set up a relationship. So that's one thing. The second is the quality of care and the time issue. Time is always of the essence. And I don't really have any good way to do that. And I'm the worst because we switched over to a computer-based system. So the first three times I tried to use the system crashed, and everybody was late. Um, I basically tell people when I run late, I'm going to run late because I want to spend time with you, because you're important to me. 
The other thing that I do is I use electronic means whenever possible. All of my patients have my cell phone number. And I have text patients, they text me back. I have one patient I text every day at 4 o'clock to say, what about your medicines? We've been doing that for three months, and the viral load is suppressed, so I'll keep doing it. So a uh, couple related questions. I mean, you got to do what you got to do. I've got her cell phone number, too. <laughs> <laughs> Later. <laughs> um, questions about the intersection between race and poverty. Um, kind of which is more important in some of these things? How do you tease that apart? And then how significant a barrier is the distress of science, which is, I'm stereotyping, probably more of an issue in the African-American community? Actually, I'm glad you raised those questions. I'm not sure that we can disentangle race and poverty because of the, the legacy of poverty and race in this country. I, I will say that there have been studies done, not in the field of HIV, but outside of HIV, that if you look at African-Americans who are financially, quote, affluent or comfortable, they still have trust issues. That being said, I would refer you to Vicki May's paper where she did demonstrate that African-Americans are willing to engage in research and engage science. It's all about trust. It's not all about Tuskegee. We all kind of got past that. We need to get on to what has been your experience more proximate with the healthcare system. If I've had a recent experience in the healthcare system that justifies my not trusting you because you treated me poorly, then that verifies and boosts my hearing of Tuskegee. If you're at variance with that, I might be willing to give you a shot. So, um, oh, Jerry, I'm sorry. Oh. Once you sat down, oh, here comes I didn't a hard see you question. <laughs> you're, you're, you're it's on. on. Can it's you hear on. me? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, I take a co-chair prerogative of yeah. asking a question. Um, Vicky is wonderful, and obviously everyone has learned and enjoyed and uh, admired you for it. Um, you touched on something that I think is worth expanding a little bit, so I'd ask you if you would, and that is the issue of um, spiritual beliefs. Now, I'm a very secular person, and but I know that most of my patients have very deeply, not just spiritual, but religious beliefs, and that um, for many of my patients, including some of the ones that you've discussed, the turnaround has been actually a religious conversion. Now, it doesn't have to be quite that, but at least in a religious or a spiritual attachment. So I wonder if you could talk just a minute about that as another available resource in the community that we don't generally think about because we tend to be biomedical? Well, I'm not exactly sure where you want me to go this year, but I can tell you our experience. And I would agree with you. A lot of our patients have, um, have spiritual homes. Sometimes those spiritual homes have felt closed to them because once they acquired HIV infection, they felt that was someplace they couldn't go. And I'll just give you a brief example. One of my patients is now 78 years old. She presented at 70. Um, she presented at 70 because she began a relationship with a person she had known in high school. They were now both widowed, and unfortunately for her, she did not realize that while he was, after he was widowed, he obviously was in many places. I'll leave it there. Um, and so she presented with thrush and a lot of other things, and her age was looked at for cancer, and only when that was ruled out did they decide to do an HIV test, and she was positive. When she went to the church picnic, and the idea was she was going to speak to the pastor afterwards, some people were fighting over glasses, and one person said, just use a glass, it doesn't matter, nobody's got any damn AIDS here, and that, of course, immediately turned her off. She and I went to her pastor, and when he heard about this, he was so chagrined, he made the next Sunday AIDS Awareness Sunday, and spoke about it at length. Where we practice, I am very fortunate, we are ringed by a number of churches, so the case managers we use are not just based in the clinic, they're also based in the churches. And some of the churches actually have AIDS care teams. Uh, and in, there are a large number of congregations in the Washington, D.C., and Virginia area. There's actually now an AIDS ministerial coalition. 
So I think that sometimes we, from past experience, those of us who have been doing this for a while, may have a stereotype about how the pastor will respond, not recognizing that sometimes they can be your best ally. Uh, and in fact, several of these churches have had not only AIDS awareness, but recruited the providers from our practice and others to come and speak about it and actually said, and now that you've done talking, the parents you go to the left, the kids you go to the right, I want them to talk to the, to the kids. And parents, I want you to come with me so you can talk to the kids where they'll listen, because you've got to be able to hear the stuff that's important. Uh, and then finally, I think anchoring people back to that, because it also gets back to resiliency. When we always talk to people from a deficit, you ought to, you should, you didn't, blah, 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 we, we are inadvertently hammering them down further and further, as opposed to recognizing, you know, I have patients who've watched their family members be murdered and have been jacked up on the street, and yet they have the wherewithal to get their underwear on and come to the clinic every day. So I think we need to recognize that and build from what you've been able to do as opposed to what you didn't get done. And that's also part of it. 